Welcome to the Griswold Podcast on iCode Media. Today I had a great discussion with Tad Kasinovich, who is from Florida and is running for the AOA Board of Trustees in 2020. Please enjoy our discussion. As always, please subscribe to the podcast, give us a five-star review, and support those who support us. Today's show is sponsored by iCode Education. At iCode Education, we create and host high-quality, relevant, COPE-approved online optometric CE. We offer practice management courses from billing and coding, fee assessment, and chart auditing to clinical courses that focus on topics ranging from the anterior segment to the posterior segment to myopia control and neurological disease. Additionally, we partner with associations to help them provide their members and non-members with online continuing education at their own pace, on their own schedule. This allows our associations to generate non-dues revenue and provide a valuable service for their members who are allowed to obtain hours from distance learning entities. Check us out at iCodeEducation.com. That's E-Y-E-C-O-D-E Education.com. One more time, E-Y-E-C-O-D-E Education.com. trustees to add the um, you know they always sort of have this idea of what 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 are their what are their ambitions in terms of what do they want to be able to contribute to the AOA board and sort of I guess give give us kind of your background of involvement in the Florida Automatic Association and with an SGRC and kind of what your goals are uh, as an AOA trustee if if you can uh, if you you win that election. Well, I appreciate the opportunity to get together this morning and, and have the conversation. And uh, first of all, my respect to you for doing this. Thanks. This is quite a, an uh, achievement. It's a big undertaking. And to be able to come out and do this on a, on a regular basis and interview uh, individuals and, and support our profession in this way is uh, my hats off to you. Thanks, Ted. Um, you know, after a, a nine-year run on the FOA board, I had the opportunity to really get deep into the association um, just through uh, different circumstances. Uh, we did not have uh, an executive director consistently throughout those nine years, and it meant that we became a very cohesive board. Um, we took a lot of the control of the association, um, the nuts and bolts, rather than just being an oversight board that, that maybe dictated to or was following an executive director. The, the board had to step up and, and play um, not just the board role, but the management role. Everything from the convention committee, um, fundraising, development of the pack, those types of things that, that had occurred, uh, we really had to be part and parcel of the association. Um, one case in point, the Florida legislature, um, while I was on the board, eliminated the CCE, which was the Committee for Continual Existence. Uh, the federal government had looked at that. That was a fundraising arm for legislative activities. And they found that to be too soft. 
soft money. There was a lot of financial manipulations that were going on. Um, so those were outlawed and our PAC fundraising went from uh, a significant monthly amount to almost none. Mm. And we had to, uh, you know, all those, all that credit card information, uh, all the contact, we had to rebuild that from the ground up. Uh, and that meant uh, individual board members going to the office in Tallahassee and working with the staff um, and, and rebuilding that, that fundraising uh, machine. And as you know, uh, PAC money is the lifeblood of any legislative event. Um, and optometry being a legislative profession, uh, you need to keep your PAC strong, both at the affiliate level and at the AOA PAC level. Um, when I started on the FOA board, our relationship with the AOA was not the best it could have been. <laughs> our idea of having a relationship with the AOA would be to send the executive director and or the president to major meetings and I don't think we were getting all of the information that we could have. Um, you know, if you only have two ears at an event, you might only filter it one way. Yeah. But if you have eight or ten ears, now you're able to get multiple perspectives and be able to bring that back to um, the association, the state association, and, and really how does this apply to our state and how can we benefit our members. Um, so throughout my time on the FOA board, I made it a point whether the state association would pay my way or not. I went to all the AOA things and when I got on the executive board, I made it policy that all four of us, plus our operations managers, we had five people at all AOA events, um, whether it was on the hill, whether it was um, SGRC TPC meeting, whether it was optometries meeting. So I'm really proud of the fact that FOA has developed a major relationship with the AOA. What's the, um, so uh, coming from a smaller state like Nebraska, you know, um, my, my perspective is that we've always had this very tight relationship from the Nebraska Automatic Association and the American Automatic Association. I wonder why it's the case, because I do see that now, you know, on SGRC and, and um, I do see that, that larger states uh, tend to like to do their own thing. Why do you think that, but it's not always the case, but why do you think that that was for Florida? Yeah, it really came to light for me over the board certification issue. Mm. Um, being part of leadership and, and really a strong advocate for organized optometry, uh, we had a lot of members that just wanted to be a member of their local society or the state association and did not want to be part of the National Association where it's calling the office in Tallahassee saying, hey, I'll pay my state dues, but I'm not going to pay the national dues because I don't believe they're representing my interests. So, How many people was that the case for with board certification in, in Florida? 
Over a hundred. Really? Yes. And, and did, do you have an option? Can you can you be a member of you, an affiliate without being a member of the AOA? In in many affiliates, it's in the bylaws that you can't segregate one from the other. Mm-hmm. Um, although it's not a bylaw issue for Florida, uh, we took a hard policy stance on that. Is you're all in or you're not in. Yeah. Um, because what happens at the state capital eventually is going to happen right. in Washington D.C. And uh, my legislative chair was uh, one of the key parts I've learned from him is all politics is local until it's federal. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So you really can't uh, say, well, I'm just going to pay attention to what's going on at the state level. Um, we really need uh, for the strength of optometry to be vertically integrated just as our third-party payers are. We need the local, the state, and the national to work in concert. And, and I find the more those three are in line, the stronger optometry is. So our hard policy statement was you're, you're all in or you're not going to be in. So what happened with those members? Um, we did lose some membership over that. Have you gained um, them back over the years? A, a good portion of them. I think through... Uh, having the executive board at national meetings and bringing the AOA message back to the state and, and really seeing, educating our members how that fits into the broader perspective of optometry as a profession um, and, and not just a, a business model, but to maintain the autonomy of the profession. And, and we have had the opportunity to gain those numbers back and gain their trust. When you think about um, some of the challenges that um, you see uh, as any organization with the changing dynamics of the population of optometrists or you know the attitude of younger people or at least the perceived attitude of people in my generation and younger, um, what do you think? You know, what do you think those challenges are uh, as an association, as an organization, and how do we address those? You know, I think one of the biggest things um, a lot of people have, through high school, college, their optometric training, they kind of look at optometry as I'm going to have a great job. Mm-hmm. Well, do you think that has always been the case? No, I don't. What What do you think the shift is? Um, what do you think contributes to that shift? You know, I think a lot of people uh, originally got into optometry because they wanted to help people and mm-hmm. make a difference in their community. Mm-hmm. Um, and regardless of the, uh, yes, I can make a decent living, but it wasn't showing up on the top 10 jobs in America list. Mm. So, you know, I, I think from when you start putting, boy, I'm going to be able to make a lot of money ahead of, I can make a difference in my community. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that's part of the shift. And when I have the opportunity to go to Nova University or one of the other optometry colleges in, in speaking with optometry students, I try to emphasize the fact that this is a profession Um, and a a profession is something different than just an occupation it's not just a a job yeah you know you can go get a job anywhere 
but when you're part of a profession, there's a, a responsibility to that profession and to give back and to, to participate in the, the broader perspective other than eight to five, here's how much money I made, I'm not going to be part of my local association, state association, national association. So um, one of the biggest tasks that, that we have as organized optometry is to get that message to our younger colleagues and optometry students that you are going to be part of something that's bigger than just your career mm -hmm. or just your job. And if we can get that message across, we will see uh, membership increase. We will see participation in the PAC in, in supporting the state level and the national level uh, with a greater percentage of our, our colleagues. When, um, when you think about uh, you know, this idea that if looking at the profession as a job, um, you know, I, I I don't disagree with you. I I actually think that that's probably a large part, potential problem that that if we're not seeing effects of now, we will see them in the, in the really short future. I think um, you know when I look at it, I, I wonder is it is it about debt that it comes out and that's because almost nobody I talk to that's a student. And maybe it's just the students that I talk to. They're kind of in the circles that you and I would normally run around. So that's what they're gonna. That's what they're gonna gravitate to. But um, almost nobody I talk to that's a student uh, wants to adjust a job when they're students. But they've got, they're very idealistic. They really want to help people. They want to help people see better. They want to help people's lives improve. You know, all those sorts of things. They they want to take care of ocular disease. They want to uh, be really involved in the association. In fact, when I when I talk to people, and I'll, I'll specifically ask them, like, how many of you? And now, I think I think um, you can be whatever kind of optometrist you want to be in any specific location that you wind up being in. But the reality is, is that when I ask them where they want to practice, what type of practice they want to have, you know, so how many of you want to be in private practice? Ninety-five percent of their hands go up when they're in school, 95% of them, I, every single time. And I've done that for 10 years. And, um, and the reality is, is that's not being matched. You know, that's not being matched um, to what's going on when they get out of, out of school. And so, um, so I think that's what happens. I actually think that with students, we, they, they get it. They really, really get it. But what happens is you've got, you come out of school, you've got a massive amount of student loans, a massive amount. I mean, when I got out of school, um, my wife and I had $110,000, and that included a small loan that she had from um, from undergrad. So she rode for uh, Creighton's crew team, so she got a lot of her um, college paid for because they're a Division One crew team. And then what they didn't cover, her parents covered most of it. And then there was just this small piece that, that we had. But about $100,000 were my, my optometry student loans. And so 2008 to 2011, what I did was we got out of school and, and um, you know, I, I heard, heard Dave Ramsey about that time and, and we were just like, well, we're gonna, we're gonna knock this debt out as fast as we can. And that's what we did. So it took us about three years to do it and we hustled. Smart on your part. Yeah, thanks, <laughs> thanks. But I'll tell you, it's, but, if I had $250,000 of student loans, mm -hmm. I mean, it would probably have to be the same game, but you start doing the math and, you know, that's a very nice house, like a very nice house payment in most communities. Obviously, like if you're in different parts of the country, it's not. But, um, but that is, 
so when you have that and then you're forced with saying, okay, I can take a, uh, I can go to private practice and I can take a pay cut. And, and I, I certainly, you know, my, when I came back to our practice, I was paid, I was compensated uh, appropriately, but I knew that taking a job there that was probably going to pay me at least within the first couple of years, probably thirty to $40,000 less a year than I could have made at some other place. Um, it was hard to see at times. It was hard to see that like this is going to pay off at, at, at times, but boy, it's paid off, you know, 11 years that have gone by and, and it's like, well, I'm glad that I had enough trust in, in people who would tell me that, that um, I didn't go down that other path of saying, you know, I can, I can make more now. I'll just instead what I did is I just hustled. I just worked more and you know, I filled in a couple places and, um, and so I sort of have a knack for, um, talking and so that that sort of served me well as well but um but i i think that that 250 number two hundred thousand dollars you know that's you know even a hundred thousand dollars for some people can be insurmountable psychologically so how do we how do we get beyond that how do we kind of coach them through those things what, what do you think about that it's interesting that the i think the 10-year mark is is a magic number for a lot of kids uh, a lot of young colleagues they will um try to manage that debt the best that they can but the 250 number you're correct you're a major portion of your monthly income is going toward debt service and you know to get good candidates it is the optometry school's responsibility to uh, make the profession look attractive and, and get the best possible minds but the reality of it is once you have that debt to be able to maintain that debt service on a monthly and yearly basis is, is, a, is a big part of it. And, and that differential between a short-term corporate opportunity versus a private practice where you're truly investing um, uh, in your future, uh, a lot of people can't make that gap. And, and I think 10 years is about the right number. Um, how we bridge that, uh, you know that that's a difficult scenario when I'm sure your debt service for for that number that you paid back was a much more reasonable interest rate. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. My, I was about three. I think when I paid on time. So like, like when I paid on time. But like they had you know these the the ability. So I think the base interest rate was like three point three seven five, and by the time you have like prompt pay, um, auto pay, all that kind of stuff, like it dropped it to under three percent. Which is enticing to say, well, I'll just let that thing ride, you know. Yeah. But um, obviously, it's a whole other conversation. But but I'm so glad that I didn't let it ride because you know it still was probably full payment was close to a hundred thousand dollars a month, mm -hmm. you know. And so so like the fact that I don't have that thousand dollars a month, uh, it, it it means a lot, you know. I mean, like you know, my kids want to go or my seven kids Catholic school. That's that allows me to. Say my kids Catholic school, like right. one kid, that's Catholic school right there, done, you know? Yeah. So if you don't have that debt that you're servicing, right, then you can use it towards something else or buying into the practice. Right. Yeah. So, sorry, yeah, that's, yeah, it was way lower than what it is now. What, what have you heard now? What's the number, the interest rate number? You know, I've heard as much as five, six, seven percent. Yeah. That, that adds up quickly and, and you have... Uh, a lot of debt service and it carries out for a long period of time and I understand when you get out of school you want to be able to 
have a nice car or live in a nice community and, and, and those are admirable uh, things to do but it, it's a difficult balance and a, a lot of our younger colleagues look at maybe their second or third year out of school and say well I can't afford to be part of the association yeah it's the first I, thing that goes yeah yeah, yeah. so to, to kind of look for those leaders that can communicate a message of it is a, a long-term investment in your own profession and and uh, uh, maybe you just don't have that cup of coffee, or that expensive mm -hmm. cup of coffee. And we, you know, when we talk to our um, potential members in Florida, you know, it's you can be a member of the association and a member of the pack for seven or eight dollars a day. Yeah. And when you try to put that into perspective for them, you know, they don't look at the big overall number of. Man, this is going to cost me a thousand or two thousand uh, dollars this year to be part of that. But being part of that is a great investment. Yeah. Um, I know my first year out of school, and uh, all the rest of my uh, colleagues were getting nice jobs and, and or having good opportunities and, and making uh, significant money. Um, I decided to uh, do a residency in eye disease. And uh, the stipend for that was twelve thousand six hundred dollars. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um, eating peanut butter and jelly and, and making that uh, survival effort for the year um, was a sacrifice, but it was a great investment. I got to see two thousand patients my first year on the school. Yeah, and all of those patients, because it was in a referral center uh, center setting. All of those patients had been either seen by at least one other optometrist and or ophthalmologist and was being referred in so they were complicated cases and uh, that uh, lack of income for a year and, and subsistence living was a, a great investment in the future of my profession mm -hmm. so I think if we can get those types of messages to our colleagues that hey a little bit of a short-term uh, sacrifice can really pay off and if you get plugged into your local societies and you're part of that network that conversation you're going to find an opportunity that maybe gets you out of that job that doesn't have as great of a future um, it might not be as big of a paycheck on a monthly basis but your overall investment into that practice is going to serve you well over the length and, and breadth of your overall career. Yeah, I think you really hit on it with the, the involvement locally. I think there's this, you know, it would have been much easier for me if I didn't have these, you know, very significant one-on-one -on -one relationships with not just one person, obviously, but, um, and it would have been really, really hard for me as well because, you know, it was a fan, it's a family business. But, um, but I think the added effect of having these other one-on-one -on -one relationships with a lot of other people in the organization, it's like if, if um, you know, if all of a sudden uh, I think about if I was like, you know, I'm not going to be an NOA member or an AOA member anymore, how many people would I disappoint? You know, I mean, how many people, um, they, the, the reality is, is the organization can run fine without me, you know, but I feel like the organization runs better with me and then the collective unit, right? And I think that that, that that that's the, having that perspective that you are a piece of that puzzle. And yes, the puzzle can fit together mostly without you, that that can happen. 
uh, if, if it's just one person, but um, but that la- that piece of the puzzle that fits in that is you um, completes that puzzle. And so I think that's the the um, the perspective I've always had is that I'm not that important, but I am important. And and when I say I am important, I'm important because everybody else is important, right? They're all other pieces of that puzzle, and um, and so that would be very hard for me to be like I'm just going to walk away, you know. And and, and then at this point. It just is not going to happen. I mean, it just doesn't happen. I'm always amazed. Like some people, I can I can understand if you get really disenfranchised and you know something happens and then and then you leave. But I, I think in most cases, when I've seen that happen, there are people that were not um, they weren't really integrated in that puzzle in the first place. They didn't put themselves in. The, you know, they didn't they didn't have a lot of connections. In most of those cases, they were sort of peripherally involved. They'll be a member. Uh, but then they've uh, they didn't really commit into it, and so it's easy for them to separate from it. Um, but I think I think that's what you hit on is you, we've got to make sure that we're um, linking them early on because that's where I think they that we lose them is that you know they might be a member for the first few years because it's inexpensive, but then as you said, all these other things come up. And if they didn't have a, a real role, if we didn't give them a job or a you know a, a, a place to kind of call their own, then it's easy to walk away. Yeah, I think you you're 100% correct. The the local society piece is really where you capture them. Um, nobody's very few have joined the association um, because they knew that's what they were going to do. Uh, certain people have been involved with maybe the student government part and they they just understand organizations and they want to be part of that. So they will be lifelong members. But those non-members that we start to lose, they don't come back to the association. Mm-hmm. They don't join the pack because they wake up one day and decide to do that. Right. It's a personal invitation. One of their colleagues um, says, hey, you need to come to the local society meeting. Uh, you need to send uh, a certain amount of monthly or annually to the pack. So it's a personal invitation from a respected colleague. And uh, that's one of my messages that I want to get out. Not just that's what we've tried to do on a state level, but on a national level is bring more optometrists into the overall collective of what the association can do and really that's our only survivability long term is to band together and the way that we do that is through the association. Um, I pay attention to other uh, online social media and it's it's interesting to hear people say oh we need to form a union. Mm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know? Well, we have one of those. The, the, the closest thing legally we can have as, as, a, as a, a profession. You hit the nail right on the head. Yeah. Legally, we right. cannot unionize right. Right. To, to do that. And it's amazing to me that uh, you know, we, there's only one legal mechanism for us to have a unified voice, right. and that's through a professional association. And uh, through the nine years on the FOA board, um, you know, I had the opportunity to look behind the curtain and uh, after my time on the FOA board I thought well I'll take a few years off and, and relax and you know think about the AOA piece a little bit later in my career and the more I thought about that and the further along I got in my FOA career 
you understand the volume of work that needs to be done and I, I don't want to let up the momentum that I've built on the FOA level. I want to now take to a national level and engage our colleagues about membership, about PAC participation, about how collectively we are better. Yeah. And um, that's going to be the strength of the association. All of the peripheral things that happen, whether it's through telemedicine or other uh, corporate entities that, that want to be uh, an optometrist or take a piece of optometry, mm. um, that's just peripheral noise. Mm. Um, when we are together as an association, the individual's license has more meaning. And as long as optometry can fight for the autonomy of our licensure, um, we will maintain uh, our, our strength. Yeah. What do you think, you know, the people who would say, because I think the AOA has taken a position, a legal position that they can't really do a whole lot about new schools and increasing numbers of graduates. And then you see kind of the charts about, you know, optometry, um, well, first, you know, ophthalmology is, they're stagnant in terms of their numbers of, of incoming ophthalmologists. And most of those guys, I and mean, most of those guys, they they are uh, getting fellowship trained, so you know many of them don't want to do medical, you know, basically general medical, yeah, general ophthalmology, right. which is medical optometry, right? Yep. And so, in, in my mind, that's primary care optometry. Uh, so I always kind of criticize the guys that are practicing the way I do, the ophthalmologists that do what I do ninety five percent of the time, and then do surgery five percent of the time, right? I can understand why they'd be upset that we have expanding scopes of practices. Um, but the, um, I think that less and less of them are going into the general ophthalmolog ophthalmological realm. And so there is this opportunity for expanded medic medical services through optometrists. And so having more, you know, the, the one argument is that having more optometrists to serve an aging population is a good thing. But then the other side of it is that if they're actually coming out of school, and being gobbled up by um, by a, a commercial entity, which mainly looks at them as a resource for providing, you know, um, prescriptions for glasses and contact lenses that they can sell. How does that is that true? Is that accurate? Is that something that we need to be concerned about? I think it's very accurate. Um, you know, a, a lot of uh, because of the debt service that our younger colleagues have. They need to get into an environment where they they have a, a certain amount of income, and that winds up being in a commercial setting where the commercial setting might not promote a medical model or practicing a, a full scope optometry. Um, and, and the numbers do bear that out. Um, the, the number of optometrists that are writing prescriptions for mm. allergies, for glaucoma You've seen that medications. as well. Absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I don't think, to circle back around to the education piece, I don't think we need more optometry schools. I think the manpower is out there. What we need to do is to provide more environments for those colleagues to practice at their full scope level. And that's one of my goals um, in pursuing the AOA board 
is to to try to get the message out that you know regardless of where you're practicing regardless of the environment your responsibility is still to the patient and write the prescription for the allergy medication treat those basic conjunctivitis follow up on the patient identify those potential glaucoma uh, patients find those macular patients early on um, you know macular degeneration unless you need an injection macular degeneration is an optometric disease yeah glaucoma unless you need a filter or a stent yes is Absolutely. an optometric disease so we need to have all 40 plus 45,000 optometrists embracing practicing at the fullest scope of their education and if they are going to refer which they should not be they should be taking care of that patient in-house if they are going to refer that patient out those patients should be going to another optometric office not to an ophthalmological office and likely if they do go to an ophthalmological office they're going to see an optometrist that's employed in that right. ophthalmological interdisciplinary setting um, so uh, we, we just need to get more of our colleagues to practice at the full scope um, uh, of their education Another goal of mine getting onto the AOA board is to try to get past the outdated legislative limitations that are, are shackling optometry and, and, and keeping us from uh, addressing the needs of the greater population. The grain of America, that older population, um, there's going to be those you know, million cataracts every year. Um, and there's not enough surgeons to take right. care of them, so all optometrists should be practicing post-operative care. Yeah, um, doing the pre-operative workups, counseling those patients on what their best IOL decision is going to be. So all that entire pre-operative workup needs to be done in an optometric setting. All the post-operative work needs to be done in an optometric setting. Um, because of the manpower deficiencies at the ophthalmology level, you know, we don't need them to do anything but the surgery. Yeah, that's right. And they really don't, most of those guys don't really want to do anything but the surgery. You're 100% correct. I mean, surgeons are nice people, yeah. but they all, they don't all have necessarily sparkling personalities. Sure. There's a reason. Yeah. <laughs> There's a reason they're yeah. surgeons. Yeah. So I find optometry in a primary care, secondary care setting are a little bit more communicable with our patients. So we're the ones that really should be tasked with, hey, I think these are your IOL options. This is what I think is best for you. Let the surgeon do his job and get that patient back in your office and take good care of them. And you're gonna be taking care of that patient, then you're gonna see the sons, the daughters, the nieces, the nephews, and it really becomes building a family practice, and that's where optometry's strength is. When you think about the numbers, I mean, I, and this is just sort of, I have no idea. You know, my, my perspective is that, um, again, I've said this before, but, but sort of the guys that I run around with, they sort of look at it like you're describing, look at it like I'm just, that I, my vision for what optometry does, which is, you know, you basically are asking the question, is this something that's so rare that I just have, don't have any clinical experience to manage it effectively and so somebody else needs to do it or does it need surgery? If it doesn't meet one of those two things, then um, 
then it probably should stay in, in our practice, right? That makes sense. But, you know, I've had people that even even uh, this weekend um, after one of my, my talks, uh, somebody came up and said, but, you know, what if a patient, I see that patient and a week later their vitreomacular traction goes into a macular hole and, and then they think that I should have gotten a second opinion and they want to sue me. And I think, uh, I mean, and I actually, that is not an, uh, an uncommon conversation for sure. me to have after I've had the, and, and that's sort of why I approach the topics the way I approach them, is the same thing that you said is that, you know, if it's, if it's, if it's not surgical and it should be in, in optom optom optometry's hands, but, um, but that is not an uncommon conversation. So what do you, first, what do you say to that? And how do you approach that? Like people that are concerned that they're going to get sued because they didn't get a second opinion. Um, so uh, yeah, what do you think about that? Well, it, it, it's the education piece and I'm glad you um, speak about it in, in those terms. Um, we need to give our colleagues confidence that their level of education and their expertise in eye care is as good as anybody's yeah. out there. Um, you know, that macular traction is going to turn into a hole, whether a surgeon's monitoring it <laughs> or whether the optometrist is monitoring it. So, you know, I, I think if you have access to an OCT, and there's no reason why any optometrist should not. Right. In my eyes, that's standard of care. Every optometric setting should have uh, an OCT. Um, you can sit down, show the patient what the traction's about, say these are the options that we have. I'm going to see you in a week, see you in a month, three months, six months. We're going to monitor this. If it starts to go bad and it's time for membrane peeling surgery and a vitrectomy, I have the absolute best surgeon for you and we're going to take the best care of you. A certain percentage of these are going to go on, but a majority of them is not going to have a bad outcome and I'm going to watch this for you. If it starts to go bad and it requires surgery, we'll get you to the best possible surgeon. Yep. And that's my job as a primary care physician to identify. You don't have to go to Google. Right. You don't have to find a surgeon. I'm going to send you the surgeon that I would send my mom to. Yep. And if all of our colleagues are able to have that conversation and that level of confidence in their skills then optometry is winning. I think that's, it's interesting, the way you describe that is exactly how I'm, I'm talking to the patient as well. And that, may, that might be, that conversation right there seems so straightforward and so simple. Um, and yet it's probably one that a lot of these, these guys aren't having because they're just, um, because they are just thinking, I've got to get a second opinion. So we'll let so-and-so so think that there might be something else to do. But, but you know, on the other side of that, um, if you understand, that's kind of my, my approach when I when I talk, is that if you understand what all those experts are going to do because you have a good communication with them and you understand the evidence, mm -hmm. then you don't have to wonder. And this is one of the comments was that, well, I, I just sent them there because if there's something else to be done, it's like, but what else is there to be done? If you accurately diagnose this patient, you're telling me they've got vitreomacular traction. That's not a hard diagnosis, right? It takes an OCT. Um, and so if that's the case, what else is to be done, right? Especially if you know, know what the evidence shows you and if you even have a good conversation or a good uh, communication line with the retinal surgeon that you're gonna use, you know he doesn't even wanna see it until it's 2050, right? He's not gonna, and even if it's 2050, he's probably not gonna wanna treat it unless the patient's really begging him to treat it. 
and so or her to treat it and so um, I think it's those two pieces that I think that we get sort of lacking in some of these some some people may just they're just like I um, they, they just lack the confidence to pick up the telephone to call the guy um, and, uh, and I think it's unfortunate but I think you're right I think the more that people understand that that's you know that's part of it then um, it is uh, Hopefully, that happens less and less and less over time. That's I, I think that's starting to happen with the advent of OCT and optometry. More and more optometrists are having that in our office. We just need to, to push that message yeah. a little bit more. Look, the retinologist practices are full. Yeah, yeah, you go totally to a retina full. clinic, and it's they're hanging off the walls in the waiting room. Um, they've become injection clinics, yep. and they have so many injections to do. They really don't have time to look at the bread and butter, early dry AMD. They don't want to babysit uh, macular traction in the early right. stages until it gets to that case where it really is going to be a surgical case. So, um, I think if we get back to the time and money element of uh, our colleagues that say, okay, I don't want to do the OCT, I don't want to invest in an OCT, it's easier for me to just dump the, the yeah. referral, get it out of my office so that you know I've got the next patient in this commercial setting, I have to generate another script because those are the pressures that I'm under. Yeah. Let me go do another refraction and then I'm going to get that small piece for the next exam, that comprehensive exam lining up a bunch of comprehensive exams without the testing to manage those patients really isn't servicing your people well yeah um, you know the eye wellness and, and the, the screening opportunities that we have with um, digital photography and OCTs um, we can really identify disease earlier and be able to manage these patients in-house um, whether it's getting them on the appropriate supplement and making that part of the revenue stream in ocular surface disease talking about you know uh, uh, hot compressed masks and, and which are the more ideal artificial tears or when's the right time to go from OCT to uh, OTC to a, a prescription device um, a prescription level eye drop uh, those are optometry decisions that need to be made in an optometry clinic. Yeah, yeah. So last last couple of questions, I'll be respectful of your time, but what what percentage, I guess, of, of practitioners in your experience are, um, are basically detecting and referring or refract, mainly refractionists? What's, what's been your experience? Yeah, refract and refer optometry is dead. I mean, it's, it's, mm. it's on its way out, um, you know, with how many people is that going to impact if that's the case thousands yeah literally thousands I, I would say uh, probably a third of our colleagues that are in that scenario of refract and refer refract and refer um, do you think they realize it no why not or, or if, if they do realize it they feel that they're trapped mm. and um, they're trapped in that setting and, and don't see a, a good way out mm. Um, so if we can educate them and, and give them opportunities, um, that'll bode well for the profession long term. Um, you know, in sitting down with um, 
leadership in uh, a commercial corporate uh, environment, whether that's a um, person that's responsible for professional development within a corporate entity, we try to talk with them to educate their people within their network. Hey, we need those individuals to be part of the association mm -hmm. because strength is with the association. Um, their response to that is, well, our people don't need the association because we provide the environment for them to practice. Mm -hmm. We provide their continuing education. We're providing everything that they need. So why do they need the association? Right. And they're able to control that message. Uh, we've even gone to these entities and said, we're going to put on a whole day of continuing education, six free hours of continuing education or eight free hours, um, free admission to the exhibit hall, uh, free admission, uh, registration to the annual convention. Um, all you have to do is pay their dues and, and we'll invite them. Mm -hmm. and we'll do a three or five year plan and, and make it as attractive as possible. And they decline mm -hmm. on that offer because my belief is because they don't want the corporate ODs learning the bigger message that it's not how many scripts you write, it's the autonomy of your right. license that is the strength of your future. Yeah, it's it's not the retail piece that comes from okay, you're authorized to write this prescription. The real piece is the relationship that is developed through taking care of that individual, not just their refractive needs, but their ocular surface disease needs. Are they a glaucoma suspect? Do they fa have a family history of macular degeneration? Being able to, you know, dilate every patient and have the equipment necessary to take care of every possible need. That's that's the strength of their future. Yeah. And if they can start to build that practice, even if it's in a corporate setting, build that practice because that's your strength. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, so I guess, is there anything else that you, you think is important from a standpoint of, of um, of what you're looking for on the AOA board that, that we didn't get to today or that you want to talk about? Well, I'm convinced that the best health care is achieved when people have access to the best possible optometric care. Um, that means allowing optometrists to practice at their highest level of education without outdated legislative limitations. I want to be sure that optometrists have access to the best possible education. Um, I want to promote those optometric service to the population at large. Um, I want to communicate and educate to third-party payers the maximum value of optometric services and to discover the truest industry partners uh, to help us in this quest of building a stronger optometry. Because when optometry is strong, then the populace has the best access to care. And that's really going to be my message at the AOA level. Yeah. Well, thanks, Tad, for coming in and spending some time talking to me. I did today. It was, uh, it was a lot of fun. It's I a pleasure, it. Chris. I greatly appreciate it, brother. Thanks a lot. Take appreciate care. Appreciate it.